and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. We are back with number 14 on this AFI Top 100 list. That's 1960s <gasps> Psycho. Psycho. Film I hadn't seen before. Oh. Had you? I, I have. Well, I have, but I hadn't. Do you see? What, is, what does that mean? I mean, I hadn't seen it in the past, but I have now seen it. Oh, yes. No, yes. I, I had seen it in the past, yes. This is a film that I think there's a lot to talk about with because I might be jumping quite a far way ahead with our three questions, but I think a lot of people are taking notes from this film. Yeah, definitely. Without a doubt. So in order to prevent myself from jumping too far ahead, why don't we have you jump into plot synopsis psycho is the story of marion crane a real estate secretary who's been involved with the divorced sam loomis despite their romantic involvement sam is reluctant to get serious as he has alimony to pay for his ex-wife leaving him strapped for cash marion dreams of them running off together at her job a client makes a purchase with forty thousand dollars cash which is somewhere around three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in today's money and marion is tasked with depositing it into the bank she leaves work early and decides to steal the money and drive to California to see Sam, presumably to give him the money so he can pay his debts and they can get married. As she leaves town, her boss sees her as he crosses the street. On her way to California, she pulls over and falls asleep, only to be woken by a police officer who suspects that something's wrong. She heads into the nearest town and sells her car, replacing it with a new one in a very quick sale. Close to her destination, Marion is slowed by heavy rain, so she decides to pull off and stay at, you guessed it, the Bates Motel. After checking in, she has dinner with the proprietor, Norman Bates, who reveals that his mother, who he lives with, is mentally ill and controlling. Marion decides, after talking to Norman, to return to Arizona and give the money back. She has a change of heart. She takes a shower, but is attacked by what appears to be Norman's mother, who stabs her to death. Norman discovers the blood and realizes what has happened. He cleans up the mess and dumps Marion, her car, and the money in the nearby tar pits. A week later, Marion's sister, Leela, arrives in California at Sam's shop looking for the missing Marion. Sam, of course, hasn't seen her, and the two are approached by a private detective named Arbogast, hired by Marion's employer. Arbogast discovers that Marion had stayed at the Bates Motel and attempts to interrogate Norman's mother, but Norman refuses. Arbogast calls Lila, telling her that he plans to return within the hour, and sneaks into the Bates house, where he too is attacked and killed. Norman then moves his mother to the fruit cellar. Sam and Lila go to the sheriff, where they find out that Mrs. Bates has been dead for ten years, having been part of a murder-suicide. That's not good. Lila and Sam go to investigate, pretending to be a couple staying the night. Lila sneaks into the house, but Norman becomes wise to their plan and knocks out Sam to go in search of Lila. Lila hides in the fruit cellar and discovers, you guessed it, Mrs. Bates, who is little more than a mummy. Norman attacks her, dressed in his mother's clothes and a wig, but Sam saves her at the last minute, and the film ends with a psychiatrist explaining that Norman's personality is split, partially his and partially his mother's. His mother personality killed women he was attracted to and has fully taken over his mind. There's only one thing, plot-wise, about this film I don't like. What? It's the ending. Really? I don't think we need that psychiatrist to tell us that. 
at least not little, in that fashion. It's a little much, yeah. It it feels uh, it feels a little too expositiony. And the actor who's playing the psychiatrist is like, "Oh boy, my big moment. Let me yeah. ham it up." Oh, Which yeah. it's supposed to be a big reveal. I get it. I mean, I think contextually everyone has already understood what's going on up to this point. I mean, once you see Norman Bates dresses his mother trying to kill Lila in the fruit cellar, I think yeah. we get it. I think a modern film would have done this differently. They would have shown Norman Bates being evaluated psychiatrically mm-hmm. and then maybe have a voiceover of the psychiatrist doing a more deadpan like rendition of his speech as like a report to somebody. Yeah, I think so. That's the only thing plot-wise I don't like about this film. Everything else I think is plotted brilliantly. I think it's incredibly well done. I really like this film. Oh, because you would have the reveal would have been new to you. Well, no, unfortunately. This is one of those films that Oh, you knew. You can't but know it, right? Like there's yeah. no way around it. So Yeah. When we started uh, watching it, my notes say, "Okay, I know that he's the mother, right? I know that she dies in the shower. I thought that'd be much later in the film. That's mm-hmm. pretty surprising pretty early. to me. And, of course, everyone else who was seeing it in 1960, that Janet Lee dies in, like, minute 42. Yeah. So I knew all that, unfortunately. But I still, I think knowing it didn't make it more compelling, but I was still incredibly compelled by the film. I was like, how are we going to get from A to B? Mm-hmm. I really kind of just want to move through the film yeah, chronologically. That, sound, that sounds great. Starting with that first scene where we have Sam and Marion in the hotel. Know, in the hotel, obviously had just finished making love. Post coitus. <laughs> Janet Lee's in a state of undress, and it's kind of like, wow, it's spicy for 1960. It, it, it was actually, and that that's a good thing to point out. This film. Uh, broke a lot of um, sort of, I guess, cultural barriers, you might call them, for for things in films, right? Or it broke ground, I guess, right? So the idea that not only do we see her lounging around in her underwear, uh, but also that they're in a hotel room together, they're unmarried, and they've just uh, had relations, uh, is a big deal for 1960. Yeah, and there's actually quite a lot of this in the film. You see her in the next scene also without a shirt on. I mean, she's wearing a bra. It's not like right. know, super modern in that regard. But but still racy for the 60s. Very racy. And, of course, the shower scene, even though it's incredibly violent, you know, there's also nudity in that. Mm-hmm. You know, cleverly concealed nudity, but nudity nonetheless. Well, and the idea that she gets stabbed on screen in such a violent manner. You right. Know. And the reason I read about this is that, that this is all done strategically in that in order to get this past the censors they threw in like everything to try to get them to cut down on things they didn't find important Mm -hmm. and then hitchcock could come to bat with the things he really wanted to keep in the film right so yeah the on-screen murder the fact that norman bates is his mother right like they've yeah. like he really worked hard and so i think a lot of these racy elements are other leftovers from things that they were just trying to chaff the system with basically in order to get yeah. the important stuff through yeah so that first scene i think we get so much of their relationship 
in just a tightly constructed set of dialogue and you really start to feel for these characters like i already wanted them to be happy thinking like we've got to find them a solution yeah it, it really does a good job of setting up uh her her story her her struggle right yeah it motivates her action when she takes the money we're not like why would she do this it's like oh she yeah. really wants to be happy with sam and sam is under this crippling debt of his ex-wife and he just needs to get out from under it and, and wants to give Marion a good life, but can't. And that, you know, he's got this sort of toxic masculinity about it. Right. That, that's, you know, really a product of the time. He's not like saying, Oh, we can never get married. He's just like, I need to get my ducks in a row before we do this. Right. And so it all makes sense. Right. And the next scene when she's without a shirt again, it's now a black bra, right. To mm-hmm. signify her loss of innocence in this regard where she is taking yeah. the money also, her purse was white. Now it's black. This one little bum, you know, bum, bum. small detail. I really thought those were really well constructed. You got the yeah. skeevy, I assume to be Texas real estate guy. Yeah, Texas. Pays in cash. He has no Texas accent, I'll say that. But it, very much he's coded as Texas with he the looks like a string Texan. tie and the cowboy hat and the boots Yee- and everything. Yeehaw! And then from there, when she's running away, it's just this you know, string of more uncomfortable moments that she runs in with the police officer, who's actually a very nice police officer. Yes. And it's only when she's acting incredibly strange that he gets suspicious. Yes. And then car salesman, also incredibly nice, but she just keeps setting off everyone she comes across, which... She's not a very good criminal. No, but it's also important for the plot and also thematically because when she comes across Norman, he's clearly off. But he's not suspicious in the same way that the other characters that she's come across have been. Yeah. And so she's her guards down a little bit more with Norman. Yeah, definitely. And it's this parlor scene, right, where he talks about stuffing birds right. because he couldn't stuff beasts and birds are, you know, there's something about them. And he also mentions you eat like a bird. Yeah. It's the pa- the passivity of the birds or something. Yeah, I have a note where I'm like, hey, you eat like a bird. Also, I love to stuff birds. And you're like, hmm. (laughs) So this is actually the scene where we get our pivotal scene. There's so much going on here. And I could have recorded, you know, eight minutes of this and it all been perfect. Because this is where we get a true understanding where there's something really off about Norman. And something, you know, pathological. And and in fact, he's a serial killer is what it ends up being. Hmm. But the moment where we're talking about madness madness of his mother how we all go mad sometimes mm-hmm. so let's take a listen people always call a madhouse someplace don't they put her in some place i'm sorry i didn't mean it to sound uncaring what do you know about caring have you ever seen the inside of one of those places the laughing and the tears the cruel eyes studying you. My mother there. But she's harmless. She's as harmless as one of those stuffed birds. I am sorry. I I only felt... It seems she's hurting you. I meant well. People always mean well. They cluck their thick tongues and shake their heads and suggest oh so very delicately. But 
suggested it myself. But I hate to even think about it. She needs me. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? The reason I chose this one is something that will come up again in our three questions, but this is our villain, who we're now reasonably certain is our villain, based mm -hmm. on what he said, that is voicing a philosophy of really <laughs> bad stuff, right? About we all go mad and isn't this the way it is with everybody, but it's done in such a way that it's totally understandable like we understand yeah. how this person has gotten here if not the specifics the generalities it's it's somewhat reasonable right yeah somewhat reasonable i think it's a really good way to put it and it's done in a dramatic fashion it's not as if norman is quietly doing we have close close-ups on his face we have marion reacting this is staged in a way that is is very dramatic i think we see this a lot in other films with very little success. So I want to keep our eyes on this one as we go. But I think in this one, it's very effective because it's not as overstated as it could be. Why don't we move on to the shower scene? Yeah, sure. So and also the first scene in uh, American cinema where you see a toilet flush. Yep. I was going to bring that up. The fact that they have a toilet and it flushes before I even saw the note about that, I was like, well, I don't think I've ever seen a toilet flush before on a yeah. movie. Yeah. And it's the first time. And the writer was like, I want to show this. I want it to be real and grounded. And he's like, Hitchcock, that is, said, make it so. Like, write make it, it so. in. Do it. And they did. And then we have the infamous shower scene where Janet Lee is murdered. Of course, we know later by Norman Bates, not his mother. But this is... A scene that is just crystallized in American film mentality. Yes, it is. And and what's what's perhaps most tragic about it is that in the in the pivotal scene, right, that you've chosen. I mean, that really is the scene in which she decides to go back. She realizes she's made a mistake. It's there. There's no way it can end well for her going forward. So she takes this sort of, uh, you know, baptismal shower, right, to, like, wash herself of, of these deeds. Uh, and, of course, she doesn't get the chance to to return the money. She doesn't get a chance to redeem herself. Right. It's classic structure, right? At the point of someone's mental salvation, they are physically not, right, not saved. They're, yeah. in this case, killed. This scene took a whole week to film yeah and it was very complex and it's like what a minute on screen minute and yeah a half. and it and it's got something i read somewhere it has something like 78 cuts like yeah quite a few there, there are that many i mean it's it, it's it's a very complex scene and there was all the weird uh sort of film would wizardry that they had to do to one, you know, not show her totally naked, but two, also, you know, get her to be able to shower uh, without hitting the camera and without hitting her face so she could act. And 
uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts going on. She's got a body double during this as well. Yes, it's like some Playboy playmate, and the only reason that's significant is that she's on the cover around the same time in a shower, evidently. Oh, so a bit of a nod, but so they're using two actresses for this, or using a model and an actress for this. They've got to cut away from overt nudity, right? I mean, these actresses, these women are clearly, you know, naked at points, but they're not going to show anything. So they've got to get around the obscenity clauses of censorship. And they also have to do knife and stabbing and cutting away from a knife that's not going to actually enter one of these women's bodies. Right. They've got the shower who, I think, when they're looking up at it with the cameras, like actually six feet big so you can fit the camera in it and not get it wet right all these crazy things right but it's so iconic the soundtrack that part of the soundtrack that everyone remembers most is this part (laughs) of the film you've also got so it's iconic for all these reasons and i mean that's why i knew completely about it before going into this because it seems like every single person references this not right. even satirically, right? That it is source material for American horror in film, and people use it with reverence and not just, you don't just have like the parody, the Simpsons parody, right? You have right. everyone using this in every capacity. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah. It is, it's so iconic. This is, and we say that a lot about movies on this thing, but it, it truly is. You can't get away from it. No. And there's a lot of symbolism and, and things to be said about the, paintings on the walls in the parlor i mean i only know a little bit of it but for for instance the one that norman bates uses as a peephole which is also like where is that hole on the other side that she is not noticing this at all yeah because that is not a small hole and it's a massive hole it's behind a picture where i forget the exact name of it and what's going on but it's a woman who is naked her clothes being torn away by some men and it's in on many different levels but on one level just a basic surface level is that Norman is, you know, peeling back her clothes and seeing her before she's killed, which I think is also the intention of the painting or something. So there's a lot of work being done into that. I, it's just way out of my depth for it, so I can only glean what I read briefly before yeah, this yeah, recording. Yeah, yeah. But I just want to use that as a as a moment to point out to people listening that there's so much going on here, so much deliberateness. It's not just, you know, black bra, white bra. There's a lot that Hitchcock is doing to make this uh, a deeper film yeah yeah it it's it's very well crafted extremely well crafted and so after she's killed that's really the first half of the movie and then we kind of start up again which is a a plot device you know sort of the false start of the movie that we see quite a lot except for people truncate like the first five minutes like oh these are our our main characters oh nope they're killed by the serial killer and now the rest of the movie is the the teens who go and try to survive this or whatever but this is a full half of the movie almost. Well, yeah, I mean, it is. It's the first full half of the movie. Yeah, I mean, and then we really get in. I mean, this is this is really about, I mean, this is why when I started writing this synopsis, I, you know, it's like, whose story is this? And and it, I guess it has to be Marion Crane's really, right? Uh, Norman Bates is, is sort of, is almost ancillary, even though he is the uh, villain. So it is her story. All the ramifications of the plot are because of her yeah but in which some ways that also makes her just instrumental to it i also think you can make an argument this is like lila and sam's story 
In some way, yeah. We don't get an after, you know, afterwards from them. But, you know, a large part of me thinks that these two end up together. Yeah, I've thought that before, too. Hey, your girlfriend died. Just, you know, date her sister. Well, (laughs) I think that's crudely oversimplified. Yes, no, it is. It is. They've they've both had this really traumatic experience. They've lost a loved one. Her sister, the woman he wanted to marry. Like they seem to be genuinely in love. I don't. I don't think that he was, you know, disingenuous with her in any way. No, I don't think so. Both lost a loved one, and then they both go and try to solve this crime together. And then he ends up saving her at the last moment, and they're both there in the trauma of that moment as well. And it's you just think, man, those two people, how could they not be in each other's lives after this? Yeah. And you know, one way that could manifest is romantically. Yeah, I, I I think so, right? And in 1960, one way it might have to manifest, like you're not going to have your good friend of an opposite gender in 1960 in quite the same way you could in 2019. Right, absolutely. And that's just my little happy ending, or a little like bittersweet ending that I, I, want, I want to, that's my ship, I guess, as the kids say. <laughs> Do you think maybe now's a good time to turn to our three questions? I, I think I think so. I think we're holding, at least I think I'm holding back stuff that I'm saving for that. So let's do it. All right. We'll make you hold it back one more time because we're going to talk about Anchor first. Uh, will we? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now we're on to our three questions. First yes. question, as always, what do we owe to this film? Oh, my God. This is this is a you know we, I feel like a, in a lot of these films we were sort of like oh it's it it so many films have aped it moving forward but this is one again that like that yes the the way that the camera moves uh the way that the scenes are set up the way that the camera's been um used to hide things to show things right um to the, the way that violence and sexuality is shown on screen uh in in the 60s i mean this this is a film that is hard to understate how much of an impact it has on the the rest of sort of american film yeah i think to further your point about violence and sexuality i think horror movies american horror movies the only ones i have context for really i think pull a lot from this although i think they have it in the wrong proportions for instance i think a lot of the nudity we have in modern horror films like slasher films and whatever other genres they are the ones they have a lot of nudity mm-hmm. i feel like set they looked at this film and said hey wouldn't this have been better if we saw janet lee actually naked during this scene yeah yeah and they sort of missed the point of what that's about you mentioned something about baptismal right she's trying to be uh, reborn, right? So the right. nudity can also be symbolic of her actually being a child again, right. returning to innocence, right? Now she doesn't, it's no longer white bra, right, white bra black bra. It's, you know, complete um, nudity in that she's moving forward, clean start, right? And yeah. I think films are just like, but what if we enticed more people with nudity in moments of violence? Right. I yeah. I think you're one hundred percent right. It goes the same for the for the violence as well, right? That like yeah, the violence has become more shocking to the point of torture porn, uh, in in horror films, which which misses some some of the point. I mean, I guess it's its own new point in its own way, but it, but it misses some of the point of like what a film like this is doing, uh, because the, what's horrifying is yes that she gets killed 
but it's not necessarily the the you know seeing the knife stab over you know what i mean i mean i guess that's part of yeah. it i don't know well i mean i can just talk about my own personal taste here but i would much prefer a horror movie like this where we've got i would say tasteful nudity and moments of extreme violence that are punctuated they're not extended yeah and i would i'd vastly prefer that to like cabin in the woods which i don't remember any nudity in but just the excessive violence oh cabin in the woods is terrible that i i love that we both hate that movie and we haven't watched it but it keeps coming up i fucking hate that movie yeah i mean (laughs) it's because we both hate it that we will never watch it it is our yes oh it's awful as i mentioned earlier i kind of preempted myself but i also think the you know this the sinister villain dropping major hints before they commit their supreme acts of you know violence or crime Norman Bates does that well, right? Because it's understated. Yeah. It's not something that's like over the top and dramatic and you're like thinking as the other person, like, why are you still here? But the best example of that, I, I would say, is at near the end when he walks up the stairs and there's that shot of him from behind walking up the stairs. Do you know do you know this shot that I'm talking about? Uh Norman Bates walking up the stairs? Yes. And when he walks up the stairs, he's the way he walks up those stairs there's just a little bit of a like the way he it, it's a little effeminate right like he kind of mm-hmm. shakes his butt a little bit like he walks like kind of like a woman how like a woman walks up the stairs and it is so small uh and i don't think the first time i i saw this movie i even noticed it other than that like maybe he looked a little strange but it's just the way he walks up the stairs because he's mother right he's not really right. norman and just those little tiny details uh that that exist are so just i mean that's that's like masterful foreshadowing i guess i didn't notice it because i you know that's just how i walk upstairs true (laughs) shaking your butt a little bit oh yeah i mean that's how else do you get up the stairs i i guess you're right i don't have stairs in my house so so to be more specific with what other films owe to this one i'll get to what this film owes in a little bit but I think we see very clear through lines with our villains between this film and Sons of the Lambs. Yeah, definitely. Also, a little bit of Sophie's choice in the way his parents, or really his mother and the man she's with, are found dead by poison in bed together. Mm, yeah. Kind of the ending of Sophie's choice. A little bit, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. the shower scene and using the shower curtain to clean up the body, a lot of Dexter vibes yeah, coming from that. Yeah, definitely. And then, as I mentioned, I think there's something this film owes to others that came before it. Not necessarily a film, but a short story that I'm... Ethan, I wonder if you can guess what I'm thinking about here. I don't know. It's a Faulkner short story. Oh, you know I hate Faulkner. (laughs) Oh, it's A Rose for Emily. Oh, I haven't read A Rose for Emily. Okay, well, then I will voice... I'll be the voice of, of plot here and say Rose for Emily is about this lady who is old and the town's like well she has a smelly house and we need to do something about her and she doesn't pay her taxes and ever since that man left her all those years ago you know nothing's been right with her she's kind of been off or whatever and as it turns out she poisoned the guy and kept him in bed with her until moving him to the basement so you have a very at first it seems seems almost exactly it seems like the mother did a rose for emily but it's actually Norman that did it. So there's yeah. a sort of a subtle twist on the Faulkner short story 
no one get mad at me for the crude rendition of Rose Remily. Uh, but essentially, that's what it's coming down to. So I think there's a lot coming from that story that gets into Psycho as well. Sure, definitely. I'm with you. So let's move on to our second question. And does this film hold up? Yes, the answer is yes. It, it really does. I And I don't know that there is a way in which... I mean, I think except for that ending, you're you're right. The ending is the very end is a little clunky, um, and I think that the way, perhaps, that they deal with Norman as this as this sort of uh, character with with aberrant sexuality, eh, maybe doesn't quite hold up in the same way today. In in the same way that like the, 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 you know there were people that that say Silence of the Lambs right is, sure. is a film that. It's the same conversation, basically, for these yes. two films. Yes. And because what it does, right, is that it links aberrant sexuality, or, or I guess what they would call that in the 60s, aberrant sexuality, right? Uh, yeah. Sort of non-heteronormative sexuality uh, to insanity and, and crime, uh, which, yeah, is not good. That doesn't set a good uh, precedent, right? Because it's very easy to be like, look, he's sexually disordered. And this is why he kills. And so people that are not straightforwardly cisgendered, heterosexual people will maybe murder your girlfriend, which is not true. Yeah. So I'm going to be the sort of devil's advocate here in that that is true, that it can lead to that. But at the same time, how many cisgendered, heteronormative people are murderers in other films? Right. (laughs) So it's like, like we can't have it you know, both ways in that regard. So I agree with you that I think Silence Lambs and Psycho can give the wrong message in that way and their terms and their science behind it very outdated. Yeah. So you get things like transvestite being misused. Right. I think I think in both films actually. Yeah. Well and I'm pretty sure that they I mean in, in Psycho he calls him a transvestite and the guy's like not really so he actually yeah, gets corrected yeah. in his own so it's it, that's kind of an interesting uh, thing well that happens in sansa lambs too remember yeah. they're like oh he's a transvestite like well not exactly so they're like oh i think it's beyond definition what wild bill is or does right buffalo bill what buffalo bill what did i say wild bill wild bill <laughs> like the cowboy wild like the bill cowboy <laughs> what state are you from matt texas <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think that's worth noting, but I would, I will always caution, like, let's look at the, the yeah. other sample size as well. Yeah, definitely. So to answer the question, yeah, absolutely, this film holds up. I think my rewrite, if I could rewrite Hitchcock, that's not presumptuous. <laughs> uh, I would change that ending somewhat, but that's also a modern notion that I'm having yeah. about that change, whereas this is probably a reveal that audiences would be more... Yeah, in tune so. with in 1960 i think so and the fact that this film is a little more lower budget in, in comparison yeah. and you know i mean he used a tv crew and and i think at times you can tell that you know hitchcock's got some chops doing to doing the his television show which is you right. know just sort of short versions of stories like this uh and and that that feels very television you know like in the last five minutes of alfred hitchcock presents you have a man who has to explain the whole plot to us right uh yeah so i'm willing to forgive that a little bit for the for the rest of the sort of masterful craft of this of this film yeah same here so our third and final question do we care about this i think so yes i think that this film really pushed the boundaries of what was uh 
allowed and possible in films. Uh, you know, this shows us a toilet flushing and pretty straightforward sexuality. And then perhaps some, you know, uh, more complicated versions of sexuality. Uh, it shows us all this violence. This is this is a good horror film that shows us that, that, that I think this film asks us in many ways, who is the real monster here? Is Norman Bates the monster? Is it is it he made this way? Uh, is I mean that's the question with Marion's story, right? Marion starts out in a different world. This she's the villain, right? She steals all this money, uh, but mm-hmm. she, but she does it for for her, for these important reasons, uh, and and has a change of heart, right? Uh, so so I think like any good horror movie, this film asks us to figure out who the monster is. Uh, and sometimes the monster is is not who you think it's going to be. And I think for my part, this is probably one of my favorite horror films. I don't want to commit myself to saying this is my hor- favorite horror film because I'm probably missing something. There's an exception I'm just not thinking about. But sure. it is the kind of horror film I would like, right? I mean, yeah. the only other thing it could do is just have way more atmosphere and, of course, would then also have some sort of supernatural elements to it. But right. I think this kind of fits the bill of what I look for in a horror film. I'm really satisfied by this movie. I wish more horror films were like this today than the way they are currently. Yeah. And I think you have to care about it from a historical standpoint and from a standpoint of what it changed and what it brought to the table in American film. Yep. But ultimately, on a personal level, I absolutely I absolutely adore this film. It, yeah, it's just a good movie. I mean, it, it, it does just about everything it's trying to do. Absolutely. So I think that's a good place to wrap up. But next time, we will be back on AFI with 1977 Star Wars. Star Wars! And that's kind of appropriate because the ninth movie just came out two days ago. So we'll get to see that sort of alongside the hubbub of the recent release. And uh, that might be fun. Yeah. But until then, I've been Matt Buzell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. I didn't hear anything about spoilers. You're a bad little boy. No, mother, no. No, mother, please, no. That's That was not good. <laughs> There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.